Okay, how many of you guys ever had a bad day at the office? Now, I probably shouldn't raise my hand because there's only one other person that works in the office and he only works half time with me. So if I say I have a bad day at the office, that's probably really a bad day at the office. Uh, But we all have a bad day at the office at some point, good or bad, whatever the case may be. And you begin to have that bad day. And you know, one of the best things to do to get your mind out of that is to think about all the jobs that you don't have. Like you think about, oh man, this job stinks. But at least you don't have some of these other jobs that have got to be some of the most hated jobs in all times, right? I mean, think about a telemarketer. How many of you would like to work as a telemarketer? I mean, you think about how many times they call during dinner time and how many people just, I mean, how many times you get hanged up on in a day? You know, that would be a a horrible job just to get hung up on all all day long. What about being a TV weatherman? Yeah? You know, TV weatherman, if he's right, he's a genius. If he's wrong, we've got four-letter words to call him. You know, and I think about, what if you were married to a TV weatherman? I mean, like, You say, hey, this is where I'm going, and, you know, you're like, are you really telling me the truth, or is this like like it was supposed to rain last week? And you said, you know, how am I supposed to believe you? And, uh, you know, I've got a real love-hate relationship with my dentist, and, um, you know, this is probably why. Uh, You know, the dentist, he is a good guy. The dentist is really a good guy. He's really fun and engaging, but I hate going to see him because this is what he does to me, right? And so... You know, if we could just go hang out on the ski slopes, him and I would get along really well. But when I've got to go see him, I'm just not satisfied with seeing the dentist for that reason. What about a used car salesman? You know, like how do you speak out of both sides of your mouth? Is that like possible? I mean, if you're a used car salesman, I'm sorry. You know, there's some really good ones out there. But there's also that stereotypical used car salesman. What about, what about this guy? Show that next one. What about this guy? Anybody ever met him? Yep, I met him recently, and I am not fond of him. Uh, $20 later, at least it's only 20 bucks, but still, uh, parking enforcement. This is Yakima. This isn't a big city. This is Yakima. Parking enforcement. And, and, and probably one of the worst jobs that you could imagine is to be a tax collector. I mean, does anybody like playing taxes? Anybody actually like paying? I mean, anybody willing? Oh, I love to write this check every time. You know, but, but the reality is, you know, the, the U.S. government has a $3.5 trillion budget. Somebody's got to collect those taxes, right? And so we have tax collectors that go around, and their job is to collect the taxes from, from us. And so, you know, if you ever have one of those bad days of the office, at least we can say we're not one of those jobs. Or at least we can say, you know, at least I don't have to be a tax collector. Well... Today, we're going to continue our sermon series, Jesus as King, Jesus the King. Uh, this is a study of the Gospel of Mark. Today, we're actually going to be in uh, our fourth week, uh, Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. If you have a Bible, if you want to turn to Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. We do have an usher in the back. If you don't have a Bible, you didn't bring one with you today, just slip your hand up. We'd love to be able to bring one of those up to you. Um, we've seen through the first couple of weeks of Mark, we've seen that Jesus has started his public ministry. And as he started his public ministry, he's really centered that ministry on two things. He's been doing a lot of preaching, and he's also been doing a lot of miracles, a lot of healings, a lot of these sorts of things. And when he's preaching, he's going about preaching because really Jesus said, this is what I'm about. I'm about preaching uh, the gospel of repentance. I'm about preaching about believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And secondly, he goes around and he's been performing these healings, these miracles, because what he wants is he wants people to understand who he is. He wants people to understand, hey, I'm not just any teacher of the law. I am the Savior. I am the Son of God. I am the Messiah. And so he's been performing these miracles to to show that he has that power, to show he is who he said he is. Last week, last week we saw a great passage where uh, we saw how our faith can have an impact on those around us. On how our faith can impact the people that we love the most, those around us. And we also saw that Jesus isn't necessarily interested in just dealing with our surface issues. Jesus wants to get down to the heart level of, of our greatest desire, of our greatest need, of a, the greatest holes that we have. And Jesus goes all the way, strips all the, the, the facade off to get down to our greatest need, which is a relationship with him. So if you have a Bible, today we're going to be in Mark chapter 2, verses uh, 13 to 17. I'm actually going to ask you to stand with me and, uh, as I read. Would you stand with me? Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. And this is what it says. He, Jesus, went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him. And he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were, were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the opportunity to open up your word today. We thank you for the the freedom to be able to uh, hear from you. That God, this isn't just the pastor's opinion, but God, this is your word speaking directly to us. God, I pray that you help me to step out of the way that God, you would speak through me. That God, your presence would rest on us. That you would give us understanding. That you would grow us in our faith. That you would use your word to do exactly what you said it does. To challenge us, to confront us, to comfort us. God, we plead for your presence right now. That you would stretch us and grow us. And we ask this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So our story picks up after all these spectacular healings that Jesus has been doing. He was in Capernaum. Remember the night that, that, that all the town people would come to Jesus and Jesus would heal them of whatever disease and illness they had. And so this is happening after all those healings that have happened. After, after the guy, they, they cut a hole in the roof and the guy, the paralyzed man gets dropped down and Jesus heals him. All these healings have happened. And this is where our story picks up. Jesus has gone off by himself by the seashore. To go for a walk in the sand, because isn't that what you always want to do? And people come to Jesus, wave after wave, wave of wave and wave of people that are coming. And when the people come, Jesus does where his heart is. He begins to teach them. He begins to preach about repentance. Preach about believing in the gospel, because again, that is why Jesus came. And so he returns to Capernaum, and you kind of get the idea that the crowd is still following him. He returns to Capernaum, and verse 14 says that as he was approaching the city, he, 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 he sees Levi. Levi was the tax collector. He was one of those hated jobs. He was a tax collector sitting in his customs booth, sitting in his tax booth. And we know that the rest of the story is kind of history. 
We know that Jesus gave the same message to him, the same call to him that Jesus has already given four of his disciples. He says, come follow me. In, in the Gospel of Luke, Luke tells a parallel description of the story. In Luke chapter 5, verse 28, he says about Levi, leaving everything, he arose and followed him. See, when Jesus called out to Levi to follow him, Levi made a decisive decision. He made a decisive act to, to get up and to give everything up. He gave up his business. He gave up his riches. He gave up everything. There was no going back for Levi. I mean, when Jesus calls, you can't respond with just a half-hearted commitment. When Jesus calls, we have to make a decisive decision. We have to act decisively. And we have to completely submit. We have to surrender everything to Jesus. Where Jesus becomes our top priority in our lives above everything else. And so Matthew, we see him, excuse me, Levi, we see him getting up, leaving his, his tax collector business. Leaving all of that behind to follow Jesus. Now one thing as we tell the story that's important for us to understand is before Jesus approached Levi and said, follow me. Remember the crowds were following him. Remember he had a large crowd. And so undoubtedly, when Jesus calls Levi and says, follow me, the crowds are still observing this very thing. The crowds all around Capernaum. Now, remember this dude, Levi, he had one of those jobs. He was a tax collector. He was one of the most despised people throughout the entire region of, uh, of Israel. He was one of the, this was one of those hated jobs. Now, Back in those days, there were two kinds of taxes. There was first something called a stated tax. And this is a tax that you knew if you did this, you were going to be taxed. So, for example, if you had grain, if you were a farmer of some sort, one-tenth of your crop would, have, would be taxed and be given to the government. And if you, if you had wine or, or oil, that type of thing, one-fifth of your crop would go then and be taxed to be given to the government. Uh, additionally, in some regions, there were, uh, there were taxes on fish. And so Capernaum being a fishing area, probably Levi was a, uh, collecting the taxes on the fish that came in. So those are the stated taxes. But there's also something called the unstated taxes. These are taxes that you could be charged for using the road. These are taxes that you could be charged for docking in the harbor. There, additionally, they would be able to put some sort of sales tax on whatever certain item was being taxed. For example, there's, there's really no rules for the unstated taxes. So if you were to come in and buy the newest Buick, now, they didn't have Buick cars back then, that day, so maybe it was a Buick cart, you know, something to, to pull your stuff in. So instead of just taxing you on the cart, they would tax you for the handle, and then they would tax you again for each of the wheels. And then they would tax you for the bucket. And they would tax you for every part of it. Because this, really there's no laws determining what's taxed. It was you could tax whatever you wanted. And, and so this became an opportunity for exploitation. And so, and so these tax collectors were known to exploit that unstated tax system. And so this created an element where there would be a lot of dishonest people that would move into this profession because, hey, if there's no laws governing how you do it, you could tax whatever you wanted. And in fact, if you were walking down the road, a tax collector could stop you and could make you empty out your bag and they could then tax you on whatever they found inside your bag. So if they found whatever it was, hey, I'm going to tax you on this. I've already paid for it. Yeah, I'm still going to tax you on it. And you would have to pay those taxes. 
Now, if you were at a point where you couldn't pay, oftentimes what those tax collectors do, would do is they would give you a loan. They'd give you a loan at like an outrageous rate, right? And so if you can't pay, then the tax collectors are still taking advantage of you by, by making you take a loan against them at an outrageous rate. So they're still just taking advantage of you time and time and time again. So tax collectors were, were, were known for explo- exploitation. And so they were some of the most hated people. But not only that, tax collectors like Levi, they were beyond just hated for their exploitation. Because these were Israelites who had sold out. The Romans had, had, had control of the region, and they essentially worked for the Romans. They were, they, were, they were furthering the cause of the Romans. So this was as an Israelite working for the enemy. I mean, the best way to give you a picture of this is, is think about Akron, Ohio. Think about the Cleveland Cavaliers. A couple years ago, the Cleveland Cavaliers had nothing going for themselves except for LeBron James, Right? And so LeBron James, he is, he, is, he is the heart and soul of the Cleveland Cavaliers basketball team. And then July 2010 comes. And, and, and LeBron breaks everybody's hearts. And he says, I'm taking my talents to South Beach. Okay? He became the most hated person in Ohio. I mean, people would take, uh, people would take uh, LeBron James Cavaliers uh, jerseys. Like, like, I don't know how much those are, like 70 bucks, and just burn them. I mean, like, I'm not burning 70 bucks. No way. But they would take his jersey and burn them. And the owner of the Cleveland Cavaliers wrote this scathing letter, just, just bitter and angry, just derailing on LeBron James. And he posted it on, in the newspaper for everybody to see. LeBron became the enemy. He, 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 he deserted the, 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 the people he loved, the people he claimed to love. And so... This is Levi. Levi was a traitor. Levi was a sellout. He was selling out his people to work for the enemy. See, this was so bad of that if you were a tax collector in Israel, you couldn't serve as a judge. You couldn't even serve as a witness in court. You couldn't be called to testify in court because you were a tax collector, because you had such a bad name for what you do. And in fact, their synagogues, if you were a tax collector, you'd be excommunicated from the synagogue. They wouldn't even let you be a part of the church because of what you did, because you were a sellout against Israel. So this gives you an idea of, of how they felt about Levi. He was the lowest of the low. You couldn't get any lower than Levi. So this is what makes Jesus calling Levi, the tax collector, so remarkable. Remember, we talked about how that crowd was following Jesus. And so as Jesus calls this tax collector, this, this lowest of the low, in a few minutes, the whole town would have known. All that crowd would have been texting and would have been calling and saying, did you see what Jesus just did? Did you see what happened to Levi? Levi just left the tax collector thing and just said he's going to follow Jesus. And, and people would have been wondering, does Jesus really have the ability? There's no way Jesus could change Levi's life. There's no way that's possible. And they would, have been, they would have been doubting, man, man, Levi, he's not really real about this. He's just going to revert back to his same old exploitation ways because that's who he is. He's a tax collector. Little, little did the people know that this Levi, which is what he is called here, was also known as Matthew, who is the writer of the gospel book of Matthew. Levi, the tax collector, would later become Matthew, the guy who wrote the gospel of Matthew. 
See, we don't know when his name was changed. We aren't told when his name is changed. But chances are Jesus, or Levi's name was changed after he met Jesus. I mean, this happened with the disciple Simon. Simon, we, we already learned, was fishing. And Jesus called to him and said, hey, come follow me and be my disciples. And I will make you fishers of men. And later in Jesus' ministry, Jesus changes Simon's name to Peter, meaning the rock. And so at some point, Jesus changes Levi's name from Levi to Matthew, which means the gift of God. Isn't it ironic? His name has changed from Levi, the tax collector, the sinner, the exploitation, the traitor, to Matthew, the gift of God. So Levi following Jesus is, is, is amazing to the people of Capernaum because he was the most unacceptable of all of Jesus' disciples. Of all the people that Jesus could choose to follow him, Levi was the last one anybody would imagine. No, not Levi. Not, not, not him. Why, why would you choose Levi? He is despicable. See, this shows us how Jesus relates to the world. And this shows us how we ought to relate to the world around us. Jesus sought the man that nobody else wanted. Jesus sought the man that everybody else hated. Jesus sought the man that everybody else wished would disappear. Jesus sought the man that everybody else wished would experience the wrath of God. This becomes a trademark of the ministry of Jesus. Jesus, time and time and time again, takes people who are despised, people who are outcasts, people who are the lowest of the lowest, and he seeks them to become his disciples. He seeks the least and the lost. I mean, throughout Scripture, you see many, many nameless men and women that Jesus sought after, and Jesus changed. See, Jesus saw a man in Levi. Jesus saw a man in Levi. He didn't see a category. He didn't see a long list of failures, a long list of offenses. Jesus saw a man in Levi, and he knew what type of man he could become. Jesus saw a man in Levi, and he knew exactly the type of man that he could become. And you know what the cool thing is? Jesus still does that today. He still looks at the world, and he still sees people not for their failures, not the way that we see them, not as being outcasts. He sees them for what they could become. This is what Jesus still does today. Isn't it great that Jesus doesn't see us by our list of offenses? What would be on your list? What would be those things that you're known by? Oh, you're the drunkard. You're the idolater. You're the, you're the pornographer. You're all these different things. No, Jesus says, no, I see you for who you could become, for who I could turn you into be. There's a story many, many years ago uh, about some workers who rolled this, this, this huge block of marble into Italy, into Florence. And it had become uh, this, this huge block of marble. And, and the goal was that this block of marble would be turned into some sort of, of, of statue, some sort of prophet, uh, maybe of the Old Testament or something of the sort. And so they, they roll this, this, this block of marble into the city of Florence, and, and it's there. And, and they invite some different artists. Hey, come and look at this block of marble and see what you can turn it into. And so several different artists come, including the great Donatello. And they looked at the block of marble. And they said, you know... You know, that, that marble, it's really not good quality. It's really poor quality. And that marble, it's so, it's so big, it's 18 feet long. It's just too big to be able to do anything with. And so, and so artists like the great Donatello said, you know, I'm going to decline the opportunity to do anything with this block of marble. 
many years later, in the year 1500, another sculptor came and he saw this block. And in his mind, he saw something immensely beautiful. And he resolved to sculpt something from that block of marble. Finally, in January 1504, he assembled all the greatest artists of the day. And he said, hey, come and see what I have done. And they gathered around this block marble. And as the veil dropped to the floor, nothing but praise and awe come from those who saw that block of marble, what it had been turned into. It was a masterpiece. And the centuries from then and now confirmed their judgment. Michelangelo's David is still one of the greatest works the world has ever known. And it was a rejected block of marble. The people said it can't be turned into anything beautiful or useful. See, Jesus saw the flawed life of Levi, the tax collector. And he knew he could become a Matthew, the writer of the Gospel of Matthew, the evangelist, the gift from God. He still sees men and women through that lens. While other people look and say, this is just a a, 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 a faulty, poor piece of marble. Jesus looks and says, you know, this could become a Matthew. This could become a gospel writer. This could become a gift. The Bible says in Ephesians 2.10, it says, For we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. See, Jesus looks at us and he says, you know, I can do something with that. I can do something. Well, everybody else rejects it. Everybody else says there's no hope. And Jesus says, no, I can do something with that. So Levi's life is revolutionized. It is, happens in a moment. His life is changed. And, and he knows it. So what, Matt Le- what Levi decides to do is he decides to throw some sort of reception of sorts, some sort of party to honor Jesus. Verse 15 says, And as he reclined at the table at, in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Why this reception? Why, why throw this party? Why do we go from the story of Jesus calling Levi to now Levi throwing some sort of dinner party at his house? I guess the answer would be is he wants the opportunity to honor Jesus. I mean, this is a kind of natural, natural reaction that we see throughout the entire Bible. From Genesis to Revelation. When Jesus comes and speaks into somebody's life, when Jesus comes and, 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 and pours his love out on them, the natural reaction is to honor Jesus in some way. Is to honor him. Also, this celebration was a spontaneous celebration that Levi's life had been changed. This was a recognition. Hey, my life's been changed. And that's awesome. That's something we ought to celebrate. We ought to make a big deal about. He was a changed man. He was a new creation. The old man had passed away. And the new man had come. And Levi says, this is awesome. This is worth celebrating. Jesus was certainly all for this type of celebration. In the story that Jesus told about the prodigal son, Jesus described the prodigal's father as saying in Luke chapter 15, verse 32, he says, it is fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and now is alive. He is lost, he was lost, and now he is found. This kind of celebration is is good. And you also have to think about Levi. You also have to think, You know, he threw this party. He invited all of his tax collector friends, all of his sinner's friends. You also have to imagine that he threw this party because he wanted his friends to meet Jesus. He wanted his friends to have the opportunity to have their lives changed by Jesus, just like his. Our text says that many were there. 
Luke's description, parallel description, says that it was a great banquet. The house was full. It was a, it was a, it was a happening place. People were coming from all over. The guests that Mark identifies in this text are tax collectors and sinners. Sinners was a technical term for people who the Pharisees, the religious uh, insiders, the, the, the sinners were inferior because they didn't observe any of the religious, uh, religious customs or rules. They didn't observe ceremonial cleanliness when they, during meals. They hung out with Gentiles and non-Jews. They, they, they were despised social outcasts. That was the sinners. And so we have this picture that all of these people, these tax collectors, these sinners, they all, all reclined at the table with Jesus, eating, drinking. And here's Jesus in the middle of that, hanging out with these lawless men and women, hanging out with these materialist, materialistic sellouts, hanging out with these outcasts. And this becomes too much for the religious crowd. Verse 16 says, And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why does he eat with sinners and tax collectors? See, this word Pharisees, Pharisees, that literally means the separatists. Literally means the separatists. And they are careful to avoid any sort of ritual impurity from contact with these kinds of folks. Contact with non-Jews. Contact with sinners. Contact with uh, tax collectors. They would have avoided these people like a plague. Because for them, they find it disgraceful that Jesus, who claimed to be a teacher of the law, disregarded their their, their time-honored customs, and that Jesus would eat with this kind of people. This was deeply offensive to these Pharisees. So the question is, as, as Christians, as Christians, how are we to relate to unbelievers? I mean, I mean, we see Jesus. We see Jesus here. He's hanging out with them. He's having dinner with them. He's, he's fellowshipping with them. And then we see the Pharisees, man, they won't even come near it. And they're saying, why would Jesus do this? And so the question for us is, how do we relate to unbelievers? There's different examples that we can find from the Bible. First example is we can relate to unbelievers like the Pharisees. The Pharisees were people that they separated themselves from the culture around them. They didn't want anything to do with it. And so they developed this litany of laws and religious expectations for people that if you're going to hang out with us, if we're going to spend time together, you've got to follow all of these rules. You've got to have all this, all these things in place that would prevent you from hanging out with those types of social outcasts. Basically, they had the idea that they were good and they were clean before God. So if you weren't just like them, they would look down on anybody else that wasn't just like them and didn't keep those same laws. In fact, there's, there's a story from my time when I was at Madison House. We, Madison House, one of the things we used to do is we used to try and help get families. How do we get them connected into church? And so there was, a, there was a point where we took kids, and there was an Awana program at one church. And so we would take a van full of kids and say, hey, come out with us. We're going to take you to Awana every Wednesday evening. And, and it'll be a fun opportunity to come and learn about Jesus, come and get exposure to the church, come get involved in the church. And, and there began to be this little bit of a rub in the church. And in fact, there were a, a number of leaders that came to the Awana commander and said, you know, if Kevin keeps bringing those kids, those unchurched kids, those downtown kids, those kids that looked a little different, those kids that talked and didn't have the right language, those kids that were outcasts. If you keep bringing, if Kevin keeps bringing those kids, we're going to quit serving in Awana because that's not why we're in Awana. We begin to think those are Pharisees. 
Those are Pharisees. That is the experience that these kids had. The second way that we can respond to unbelievers is like the Sadducees. The Sadducees were much more culturally accommodating. Instead of pulling away from the culture around them, they were happy to just syncretize with it. We'll just, we'll adopt uh, all sorts of compromise. We'll be just like that. So there really is no difference between believer and unbeliever. They were married more to the culture than they were to Jesus. The third way that we can respond to the culture around us is to become zealots. Zealots, these were people who pursued political power to advance their moral agenda by force and authority. These were people who were more focused on politics than repentance. They're more excited about elections than Easter. So you might hear these descriptions and you say, nah, that's not me. I don't fit any one of those. That's not me. That's not who I am. And not only, not only am I not like those kinds of people, I despise those kinds of people. I'm not like that. And while we can sit there and we can argue that from our pew, I would argue that ultimately we arrange our lives oftentimes like one of these people here. We have this Christian subculture. We have this Christian subculture and we buy into it. We've got Christian Bible studies that when we do Bible study, who are we doing Bible study with? Other Christians. We've got Christian schools that we send our kids to. We've got, we've, got, we've got Christian music, and we go to the Christian concerts because that's good and uplifting and wholesome. And we've, we, we've got our hobbies, and we go, we go play all of our hobbies with other Christians. And we, we, when we go out to dinner, we go out to dinner with other Christians. And, and, and when, we, when we choose a doctor, we're looking for a Christian doctor and a Christian dentist and a Christian plumber. Even our dogs are Christians. And we have this Christian subculture where everything around us is Christian. And this is what we begin to, to, to build our life around. None of these things are bad. Don't, don't go, none of these things are bad. But the problem is, is when we live in this Christian subculture, we will literally pass hundreds and hundreds of non-believers without ever noticing them without ever influencing them for Jesus. And we become so consumed with our Christian subculture, with these are my Christian friends, these are the people I hang out with. See, I I would argue and say none of us are Pharisees philosophically, but we often are practically. None of us philosophically will sit in our chair and say, I'm a Pharisee. But I would argue in our lives, practically we are. I don't know about you, I don't want to be that kind of a church. I do not want to be a church like that. That's not why we planted Restoration Church. That's not why we came down here a year and a half ago. It's to be Pharisees. I'm not looking for more Christian subculture. I'm not looking to create another Christian subculture downtown, but just to make us feel a little bit better, we're downtown. You know, we're, we're, we're in that area, but we're just going to bring our Christian subculture right here. That's not what I'm looking for. That's not why we're here. That's not why we planted this church. Practically, I understand it's hard. It's so easy to get distracted. I know it is. I mean, let me be transparent with you. Let me be transparent with you about how I know it is hard to philosophically say I'm not a Pharisee, but practically to become. As a pastor, I get distracted. A couple years ago, as we were getting ready for the launch of, uh, of the church, I was asked, which non-believers am I actively pursuing a friendship with, with the goal of winning to Christ? 
Which non-believers are, are you trying to win for Christ? Are you friends with, with the goal of winning for Christ? And I start thinking, well, you know, I work in a Madison house. I've got all these kids I'm really pouring into. Okay, well, outside of the work, that's, that's what I get paid to do. Outside of that, who are you actively pursuing with the gospel? Pursuing a friendship with so you can share the gospel with? And I start thinking, well, the family I hang out with most of the time, they're all Christians. It's not a bad thing. It's great. I'm glad I have a Christian family. I'm thankful for that. The friends that I spend most of my time with, you know, those are probably all Christians. Okay? Well, what about, what about the people, what about the people that you go and play golf with? Oh, my golf buddies are Christians too. What about, what about the people that you and your wife have over for dinner? Those are usually people from our small group or people from our church, you know. And, and so pretty soon I begin to look around and I say, well, yeah, I've got these non-believers that I'm friends with, but I'm not actively pursuing them with the gospel. I just have that relationship with them. And, and sometimes I'm a little awkward because I don't know how to approach the conversation. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. And so I have these non-believing Christian friends that I have, but I'm not actively pursuing them with the goal of sharing the gospel with them. And, and so this is, this is me saying, I get it. It's difficult. We begin to, to build our life around people that are just like us because it's comfortable, because it helps our faith, because it makes us feel good. I get it. I get it. It's hard to know what to say. It's hard to, hard to, hard to, to do this. And you only have a little bit of amount of time. So, so how, who do you choose to spend your time with? See, I was challenged recently where my wife and I, we've, decided, hey, well, let's really invest in the school that our kids go to. And there's one of the teachers that I felt like I've really connected with. I've really connected with one of the teachers, and I th- thought, you know, I really probably need to start spending some time in the classroom. You know, he, he's allowed an open door. Come and serve with us. And you know what I find myself wrestling with? Man, it's an hour and a half. It's an hour. I find myself wrestling with, well, I've just got so much Christian stuff to do. I've got so much church work that needs to be done. I just don't know if I can sacrifice to invest and that relationship, to invest in those kids, to invest in that teacher. I'm just being transparent because I understand the difficulty. I understand the pressure. It's hard. It is absolutely hard. Yes, we as Christians, we are called to be holy in heart, to be holy in mind, to be holy in actions. Yet we're also called to love our neighbor as ourselves. We're still called to love our neighbors as ourselves. And see, so some of us, we have this idea that we just have our Christian subculture, that we're, we're spending all of our time with our Christians, and, and, and we, we fail then to really actively pursue relationships with non-believers. That becomes one tendency. The other tendency is you say, well, I've got all sorts of non-believing friends. We hang out all the time. How many times have you actually approached the conversation about Jesus, though? Because... Either one of these is a failure. If you are not pursuing any relationships with any non-believers, you are missing the goal that Jesus has given you. And if you're saying, man, I've got all sorts of non-believing friends, but you never approach the conversation about Jesus, you're failing as well. Both of these are failures if we're not pursuing these relationships with the goal of proclaiming Jesus Christ. So, (laughs) is this really awkward right now? Anybody uncomfortable right now? I am. I admit it, I am. 
I'm being transparent. I didn't tell my wife about this. I might get in trouble for being this transparent later. That's okay because I want to be transparent because I want you to understand I feel that battle as well. So we're going to do, we're going to do something later today. We're going to talk about this during our, our annual celebration. We're, we're, we're going to create this campaign in 2015 called Each One Reach One. And really the goal is how do we reach our world for Christ? How do we begin to use the relationships that, and the places that God has put us to make a difference in our city? To, to share Christ with people, to see people's lives get changed through Restoration Church, through our lives. And the idea is, what if every one of us, every one of us in here today, made it our goal? 2015, what if every one of us reached one person for Jesus? What if we said, you know what, I can think about my life, I can think about the people I work with, I can think about the people that I'm friends with, I can think about the people that I live next to, and I can think, man, I am going to actively pursue a relationship with this person so I can share Jesus with them. I'm going to do everything in my power to build that friendship, to share Jesus with them. Imagine the influence and the impact that our church could have on this city. Imagine the impact that we could have. I mean, there's, there's 115 of us here today, 120 of us here today, okay? Guess what? Next year, if every one of us did this, there'd be 230 of us. 2017, there'd be 460 of us. 2018, we'd be 920. 2019, there'd be 1,840 people. 2020, five years from now, there'd be 3,680 people. 2017, or 2021, excuse me, 7,360. 2022, 14,720. 2023, 29,440. 2024, 58,880. 2025, 10 years from now, if every one of us made a commitment to reach one person for Christ, we would have reached 117,760. We'd have effectively reached the entire city of Yakima. 10 years. 10 years, the entire city of Yakima would have been affected. It starts with one person. Starts with one person. <laughs> How do we do this? How do we actually do this? We begin to reach out to the people around us, to reach out to the people we work with, to reach out to our neighbors, to reach out to our friends. And it doesn't have to be fancy. It can be just like Levi. Hey, let's just come have dinner together. Let's have dinner together, and I'm going to look for the opportunity. And, and if it doesn't happen, guess what? We're going to have dinner again. Oh, you know, maybe, maybe you've got the Super Bowl coming up. Maybe invite them to come watch the Super Bowl with you. I mean, you're going to watch it anyways. Why not be intentional and say, I'm going to seek a meaningful relationship so I can share Jesus with somebody. It takes time, takes relationship, takes effort. I mean, I mean, think about these little things, have them over, extend ourselves to people who are hurting. Maybe you're saying, well, well, I've got this Christian subculture all around me and I just don't know what non-believers around me to reach out to. You know what? There's opportunities for you to reach out into our city. I mean, I mean, take, look at all the unwed mothers in the city of Yakima. What if you provided a room for one of them? What if, what if you join Tony Hillerman? Tony Hillerman, every Monday night, goes to the Yakima County Jail, and he preaches to the inmates at the jail. What if you said, hey, I'm going to go and invest my time in the jail with the goal of building a relationship with somebody that I can connect with? 
I mean, what if, what if you looked and said, I'm going to go get involved in the community. I'm going to go find somebody in the community. Go volunteer. We're starting this community garden this year. Find a way to plug in with that. Find a way to volunteer at Martin Luther King Elementary School. Look for the opportunity to build a relationship with these people. I mean, coach a kid's sports team. Guess what? You have an opportunity to reach out to those families on that team. I mean, I'll even say this. If you have to quit serving in the church so you can go and and build relationships with people, do it. Because that's what we're about. I tell you, I don't want to be just a church that provides all these Christian subculture things for our good Christian friends. I want to reach people with Jesus. I want to make a difference in our city. That's why we're here, isn't it? That's why we're here. Jesus prayed for us the night night before he was betrayed. He prayed in John 17. He said, I do not ask you that you take them out of the world. He says, I don't ask that you take us out of the world, but that you keep us from the evil one. He's praying for us, not that we would be removed from the world, but that we would be in the world, but we'd be kept from the evil one. So here's Jesus. He's hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. He's hanging out with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, the religious crowd, they're so scandalized. They're so upset and angry. So they approach Jesus' disciples and they say, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus responds, because Jesus is Jesus. He heard what they were saying and he responds in two parts. He says, first in verse 17, he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those those who are sick. See, this is just supremely practical. And clear to both the religious crowd and to the secular crowd. The doctor isn't there for the healthy. They're there for the sick. You don't go visit the doctor when you're feeling good. You go to the doctor when you start feeling sick. The healthy person should go to the sick person. The joyful person should go to the person in mourning. The the strong should be made available to the weak. This is just basic common sense. There's a story uh, about Oliver Cromwell when he ruled England. There was a national crisis that arose because there was a shortage, shortage of currency in the empire. And so, so Oliver Cromwell sent a, a group of, of people together and said, go, go search the entire kingdom. We need to find some silver so we can turn into coins so that we can be used for currency and to solve our problem. So after a month of searching, the committee returned with its report. He said, hey, hey, you know, we have searched the empire high and low. We have searched all over in vain to find silver. The only silver that we found were in our cathedrals. They were the statues of our saints that have been made of choice silver. And Cromwell's response was this. He said, let's melt down the saints and put them back into circulation. Let's melt down the saints and put them back into circulation. Sometimes this is what God has to do with us. He has to put us back into circulation, into the world for him. We have to be sent back into the world just like that silver to be used for his glory, for his kingdom, for his purposes, for his mission. So Jesus completes his answer with the second part, really stating his purpose is why he came. He says, the second part of verse 17, he says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus spoke ironically and truthfully. The Pharisees, they were just as needy as the tax collectors and the sinners 
But tragically, they didn't know it. They didn't realize their need of Jesus. Jesus said to these people, he says, to people that think that they are righteous, I have nothing to say. But those who know they need me, those are the ones that I have come for. See, the person who arrogantly says, I'm a good person, I'm all right on my own, I'm a pretty good person, I'm not that bad, I'm okay. Those people are beyond our help. Those people are beyond God's help. All we can do is wait. Because sooner or later, life will catch up to them. Life will get rough, and life will turn sour, and their dreams will collapse at their feet. And that is when they will realize their need for Jesus. They will come to know their need. And this is why God often allows trouble to come into our lives. Because it begins to strip away that terrible delusion that we can make it on ourselves. It begins to strip away that idea that we're pretty good on our own. Leaves us at the point that we're opened up to the grace of God. So what is Jesus teaching us today? As followers of Jesus, we cannot isolate ourselves from the world around us. Nor should we assimilate ourselves to the world around us. Jesus is teaching us that we don't isolate or assimilate. But we are sent out with Christ on mission. We are sent by Christ into this world on mission. A mission to know Christ and to make Christ known. To love the unlovely. To eat with tax collectors and sinners. So let me just close this morning by reminding us that Jesus came not for those who thought they were good enough, but for those who know they are broken. Those who know they are in need of a Savior. See, the link between God and our soul is not our goodness, but it's our badness. The link between God and our soul is not our merit, but our misery. The link between God and our soul is not our standing, but our falling. The link between God and us is not our riches, but our need. So let's take the next few minutes as we respond to God's word through worship. Let's take the few minutes and let's confess our sin to Jesus. Let's acknowledge our need of a Savior. Let's call out to Jesus to meet us here today. Let's pray. Let's begin to pray for our friends. Let's begin to pray that God would give us a heart to reach people for Christ. Let's pray that God would penetrate the hearts of our friends so that they may come into the experience and experience the joy of knowing him as their Savior. Would you pray with me? God, we are so thankful that your word begins to strip away our hardness of heart, our stubbornness, our pride. And God, as you have spoken so clearly today, God, as we see your heart, God, I pray that you would break our hearts or we'll break yours. I pray, God, that we would desire to become more like you, not to be removed from the culture around us, but to love people with the goal of seeing their lives transformed. Jesus, the gospel has the power to save. He saved us. God, I pray that we would have the desire to see that power, that gospel change those around us. God, I pray that we would have the boldness to speak your truth. To, to not just be friends for the sake of friendship, to be friends for the sake of the gospel. That we would see lives transformed. That God, through Restoration Church, God, that we wouldn't just be doing church, but God, we would be making an impact in your name, making an impact in your kingdom. 
That, Jesus, you would not remove your hand of blessing from our church. Father God, you would use every one of us. That you would expand your kingdom. That we would see more people come into a relationship with you, God. God, I pray that you would give us that heart. I pray, God, that you would have us to love people who need to be reached out to. God, I pray that that we would have even a, a time of repentance. That we would see the areas that we have blocked ourselves out. And that we aren't living in accordance with you. That we would have the desire like Jesus to love the unlovely. To reach out. To care. God, I pray that as we look and we see the people that Jesus loved, they were the people who realized their need. God, I pray that we would be a people who realize our need. That we wouldn't be stuck in our religious pride of saying, I'm pretty good because I do this. I'm, pretty, I'm a pretty good person. But we would see that every one of us are broken. How we are still in need of you today. I pray that you would meet us here today. God, I pray if anybody is here today and they're saying, man, pastor, I'd love for you to pray with me. God, I pray that they would have the boldness just to step in the back. I'll be in the foyer. Just say, pastor, would you pray with me? Would you pray for me? God, I pray as we have this time of response, this time of worship, that you'd help our hearts to be inclined to you. That we'd get lost in the praise and worship of your holy and great and powerful name. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.